in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Um, it's on page 167 in the church Bible. And if you are visiting with us, new with us, um, we work our way through books of the Bible here and we find ourselves in a often neglected book of Scripture, the book of Leviticus. And we are in chapter 22. We started in chapter 1, worked our way all the way through chapter 16, took a little break, went back to the Gospel of John. Now we are, Lord willing, finishing up um, our study in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 22, Pastor Dale read uh, the first three verses. I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. No man of the seed of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge, may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a seminal emission, or if a man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But the sun will set and he will be clean, and afterwards he shall eat of the holy gifts for his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, becoming unclean by it. I am Yahweh. They shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it, I am Yahweh who makes them holy. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Lord, give us a holy trembling before your word. These ancient words written by Moses thousands of years ago that you have preserved for us, brought down to us in these English translations so that we can hear your voice and respond with a heart of faith. So Lord, grant faith this morning, both for those who do believe and need to grow in their faith and those who have never believed and need the impartation of life to believe this morning. Work through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Way back in the beginning pages, in the beginning of humanity in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world in six days, and he planted Adam and Eve in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And therein man dwelt with God until man rebelled against his creator. And was driven out of the Garden of Eden. And there was cherubim, angels with flaming swords, guarding the way back to Eden. And ever since then, man has been trying to get back to Eden. And there's many human attempts in man's way to try to get back to Eden. And we can see that in all the varieties of religions throughout the world. But God condescended and gave the ancient Israelites a kind of way back to God through the sacrificial system. And these are pictures 
that we find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And what we find here in Leviticus chapter 22 is, is ongoing instructions related to the Israelites, the priesthood, what the priests had to be, how they were to function, certain laws that prohibited them from coming back to God in the tabernacle, which we mentioned last week and have done so in previous studies, was a kind of replica of the Garden of Eden. And, and also we're going to learn this week the, the standards related to the kinds of sacrifices that were required. So for us in the year 2023, these seem like ancient, strange rules and prohibitions, but hopefully we'll be able to see that, that in these ancient laws we find pictures, we find object lessons that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Old Testament as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. In the same way in which a, maybe a Sunday school teacher has object lessons, flannel graph, different things, pictures to try to teach young people. So in the same way, God gave pictures in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, this, this morning we're going to look at three necessities, three conditions to come back to God or to be accepted before God. First of all, you must have the right priest. We see this in verses 1 through 9. We read it already. I'm going to kind of walk my way through this and try to give some brief explanation. You, for some of this, you, you may find the, the explanation still longing for more explanation. And, and you can find that if you go back to a, a teaching I did on the whole um, section of chapters 11 through 15 on laws of uncleanness, where I try to do a little bit more explanation there. But in verse 1, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they set apart to me as holy, so as not to profane my holy name, I am Yahweh. So what's he talking about here? So this is a kind of summary statement that God is concerned that the gifts that are brought to him, namely the sacrifices, not be profaned. And also that the priesthood not be profaned. Verse 3, say to them, if any man among all your seed... So he's talking to Aaron and his descendants, your seed, your offspring. If any man among all your seed throughout all your generation comes near to the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel set apart as holy to Yahweh, and he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am Yahweh. So God gives this high standard. If anyone is to come and approach me in the holy tabernacle with the holy gifts and to, to, to oversee at the altar where the sacrifices are brought, they must be careful that they do not come with uncleanness. Now, when we see that word unclean in our contemporary context, we think, well, maybe they need a shower. You know, maybe they need to slap on some deodorant. Uh, but that's not the kind of uncleanness that's being talked about here. It's a kind of ceremonial uncleanness that's being discussed here. And that becomes obvious when it gets awkward when we read 
Verse 4, no man of the seed of Aaron who is a leper who has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. So if you had a skin disease, and we talked about those skin diseases in, uh, again, that's uh, teaching on chapters 11 through 15, which, again, uh, when we think back to the Garden of Eden, what was the immediate thing that Adam and Eve recognized when they had rebelled against God? Their own uncleanness related to their skin, their nakedness, their shame. And so... You couldn't have leprosy or some kind of skin disease. There was a process that one had to go through in order to be acknowledged as clean to come back to the presence of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4 says, And if anyone touches anything made unclean by a corpse, so again, any kind of contact with the dead, okay, to touch a corpse or even to touch something that had touched the corpse would make one unclean. Again, this is a reminder that God is a God of life and death was not welcome back in Eden, which the tabernacle was a replica of. But then also verse 4, it mentions one who has had a seminal emission. Okay. Your faces are all red now. What's this talking about? Well, any kind of, if we were to go back to chapters 11 through 15... Any bodily fluids made one unclean, whether it was blood, whether it was postpartum fluids, whether it was a seminal emission, any kind of bodily fluids made one unclean because it was a symbol of death, okay? Even our young people understand this, okay? Having blood inside the body, good. Blood outside the body, bad, okay? You have children, your nephews, nieces. They see blood. <gasps> you know, they, they may have a, a bloody knee. You know, everything's fine until I'm bleeding. You know, and they're certain they're, that death is imminent because they see blood. Because blood outside the body, bad. Blood inside the body, good. Bodily fluids outside, bad. Inside, okay. And so Bodily fluids outside the body, a sign of death, which again, death not welcome back into the tabernacle. So there had to be a cleansing process. Verse 5, or if a man touches any teeming things which is made, uh, which, by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness A person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in water. But the sun will set and he will be clean. Afterward, he shall eat of the holy gifts for his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, becoming unclean. I am Yahweh. So here again, there's a couple more laws. If if he comes into contact with certain foods that were considered unclean. And again, if you go back to chapters 11 through 15, I argued that the kinds of animals that were considered unclean, they didn't fit, you know, if it was an air animal, it was like half air animal, had wings, but also legs and could run. And so it was regarded as unclean. Or it was a kind of animal that that squirmed on the ground and didn't have legs and 
you know, those kinds of things were considered unclean. And again, these seem to be animals that, that became unclean after the fall. And so any contact with that, you will regard as unclean. Also, we have the roadkill law here. <clears throat> if you come into contact with an animal killed by any beast, run over by a truck, <laughs> it's unclean. You don't want to have contact with it. Again, you're coming in contact with death. This is not an animal that's brought for sacrifice in the tabernacle. This is an animal that's dead. And then verse 9, therefore, they shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it. I am Yahweh who makes them holy. So we see here these strange laws. There's a, there's a blood earnestness related to them, namely that if one came into the tabernacle unclean, he could be cut off. A priest could die in the presence of the Lord because God is the holy, spotless, righteous God who has certain standards by which one can approach Him. And if one did not abide by that standard, death would come. And so this was a serious matter. It teaches us God is a holy God. In, in a sense, very unapproachable. You say, what, what do, what does all this teach us? I mean, we don't have these kinds of priests today. We don't abide by these certain dietary restrictions. Well, as we saw last week, this points us to the need for a holy priest. A priest without spot. Or blemish, a, a blameless priest who can stand as a mediator between us and God, who can enter into the presence of God and not be struck dead. One who could be that perfect representative for us before God. And we, we find all this when we come to the New Testament and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the author of Hebrews, labors to help us to understand that Jesus is that perfect priest that you need. And he argues that Jesus is, is a priest, but, but there's something of a dilemma with understanding and believing Jesus is a priest because he was not a descendant of Aaron. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah which the kings came from the tribe of Judah, but the priests came from the tribe of Levi. This is why the author of Hebrews has to explain that Jesus is of a different kind of priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15, it says, And this is, cl and this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not according to a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed about him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, which is a prophecy related to the future king of Israel, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this priest would also be a king. I'm sorry, this king would also be a priest. 
but he would not be a priest after the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a priest after the order of a Melchizedek. Well, what did you have to, what was required to be a Melchizedekian priesthood? An indestructible life. And this is what Jesus' resurrection does. It demonstrates that he had an indestructible life. An early church teacher, Gregory of Nazianzus, put it, it was required by law that perfect sacrifices must be offered by perfect men. A symbol, I take it, of integrity of soul. Perfect sacrifices had to be offered by perfect men in order for one to be accepted before God. So again, while we do not have this ancient priesthood, all of this was pictures that teach us the most important question of life today. How can I, an unclean, sinful person, be accepted before a holy God? How can I approach the holy God of the universe with all of my sin and all of my rebellions and all of my uncleanness? How can I approach God? And sadly, so much of humanity today thinks that God will accept them because of their own righteousness, because of their own good deeds, that God will be impressed with the stuff that they do and welcome, welcome them before his presence ultimately in heaven. But the Bible teaches just the contrary. In fact, Jesus on one occasion, he told a parable to help people understand this. It's in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisees, these were the super religious guys of the day. They believed the law of Moses, but instead of seeing the law of Moses as a mirror by which they can see their own uncleanness and their own sin and cry out to God for mercy, they saw the law of God as a ladder to try to climb to God and be accepted before God. And so the camera and the parable, it focuses in on the Pharisee, that he prayed to himself, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like unrighteous men, swindlers, or even like that tax collector over there. He says, Oh God, I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He reads God, his, his resume, But then Jesus, as he tells the parable, the camera then focuses in on the tax collector. Now the tax collectors, nobody likes tax collectors in any day and age. Ain't nobody likes the IRS. But these guys were like IRS on steroids. Because these were fellow Jewish men who worked for the Roman government who was the big empire during that day, to collect money, to strong-arm money from their fellow Jews to give to the Romans. And they made a healthy living off of it as well. 
And so nobody liked the tax collectors. But here, this tax collector, he's standing far off in the distance, and he's beating on his chest, and he's unwilling even to look up to heaven, and he's crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's crying out to mercy. He sees that his righteousness cannot make him acceptable before God. All he can do is cry out for God to show mercy to him. And actually the the verb that he uses, God, be propitious to me. God, give a sacrifice to make me acceptable before you. He sees that he needs perfect righteousness to be accepted before God and he doesn't have it. Friend, do you see that there's nothing in and of yourself that can make you acceptable before God? That you need Him to provide that perfect representative, that perfect priest? Don't fool yourself, my friend. Don't try to hoodwink God into thinking that you're, you're, you're really a good person who, who can be accepted before Him. No, Jesus has a spotless record of righteousness and He can stand before God as your representative. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you would not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, a priest, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins. Don't be so arrogant to think that you can be accepted before God on the basis of your own merit. Imagine with me for a moment a boy who's growing into adulthood. He's hit puberty And there's hormones in his body that are producing certain forms of bacteria growing underneath his arms that produce a certain odor. And this young man, not equipped in the fine arts of personal hygiene, not wanting to take a shower, also has discovered the wonders of that little bottle which you can, has a spray spout on the end, which you can squirt on yourself. So this young man hasn't taken a shower. Two days, three days go by. There's a kind of ripeness under his armpits. But his solution is that spray bottle. He keeps squirting it on himself. And people around him, they smell the thickness of the cologne, but they also smell the chicken soup underneath his arms. And it's repugnant. It's a foul odor. And he thinks he's accepted before others, but he's deluded himself with the perfume. Friends, we try to do something similar with the Almighty. We have the foul odor of our dirty deeds. And we try to sprinkle on some good things in our life and think that, well, God will, you know, the the good 
odors will override the bad odors and God will accept me. Friend, it's a fool's errand. You need a shower. You need a bathing. You need a scrubbing. And it's the Lord Jesus who is our perfect high priest, who can be our advocate, who's the perfectly clean one who can stand before God on your behalf. So you need the right priest. It's the Lord Jesus. But secondly, you need the right sacrifice. Drop your eyes down to verse 17 and following. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the sons of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or a sojourner who sojourns in Israel who brings near his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their free will offerings which they bring near to Yahweh for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be. It must be a male without blemish from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not bring it near, for it will not be accepted for you. So here we have certain regulations as to what is required for an Israelite to approach Yahweh the kind of sacrifice. Now, we're not going to review all the different kinds of sacrifices that are laid out in in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, but basically, there was the burnt offering sacrifice. That was the substitution offering for sin. You had the grain offering sacrifice. That was an unbloody sacrifice. That was where you would bring grain. And that was more of a tribute offering where you're expressing your devotion in homage to the Lord. But then there was also the peace offering sacrifices. And these sacrifices were were celebrating the reconciliation and peace that one had with God. There was also the sin offerings or sometimes called the purification offerings. And these were kinds of cleansing offerings. But what's the bottom line here? In verse 20, whatever has a defect, you shall not bring it near, nor for, uh, bring it near, for it will not be accepted for you. In other words, you would bring your animal, whether it was a lamb, whether it was a, from the herd, from the cattle, a bull, whether it was a goat, and you couldn't bring the three-legged goat. You couldn't bring the goat, you know, that looked like it was diseased and was ready to kill over. And God, I'm going to bring this wonderful sacrifice to you. The goat that you were ready to kill and get rid of anyways. Or No, no. God says, no, you're to bring a whole animal, a holy animal. Verse 21, and when a man brings a sacrifice of peace offering near to Yahweh to fulfill a special vow for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be without blemish to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or have a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not bring near to Yahweh nor make 
of the, make of them an offering by fire on the altar to Yahweh. So again, this is part of the ancient system in which if one was to come and approach God, you could not come on your own terms. You would bring an animal to sacrifice and the life of this animal would be taken as a picture that you deserve to die before God because of your sin. But before you would take the life of this animal, you would put your hand on the head of that animal as a picture of that animal representing you and your guilt being transferred to that animal. Now I know for some of you this is difficult. You like animals. You maybe have a dog, kitty cat, many be many kitty cats. But this was God's statement that I am a holy God. And for you to be accepted before me, you deserve to die and something must take the punishment. And here God is saying to the ancient Israelites... Again, you don't bring the three-legged sheep. You don't bring the diseased animal. This has to be an animal that's without blemish. Which, to be sure, would be an indication of the heart if one was bringing defected animals to the Lord. In fact, many years later, the prophet Malachi, the last Italian prophet, Malachi, some call him, he rebukes the Israelites. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? I haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything wrong. I did nothing. In that you say the table, in, in that you say the table of the Lord is despised. Verse 8. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive it kindly, says the Lord of hosts? What's, he, what's Malachi saying here? He's saying, look, you bring your offerings before me. You bring blind animals. You bring lame animals. Would you give that as a gift to a politician? Would you give somebody a Christmas gift that was broken? Probably not. And so the prophet is rebuking them because this is demonstrating what they think about God. Certainly there's lessons here for us. Vance Havner, he wrote a book called Lord of What's Left. The title refers to the many ways that people treat God. They make him the sovereign king, the master of their leftovers. I told you about my chickens. 
chickens evidently eat just about anything. And so, you know, your leftover toast, yogurt, even other chicken scraps, which is disgusting, which means they're cannibals. <laughs> they get all the leftovers. Now, could you imagine we have this, this pile of leftovers, having guests over the house, honorable guests, and putting those on the table. Bon appetit. This is what we're serving you today. And we think, well, what do you think of us, right? Gourmet chicken scraps. It's indicative of, of the human heart. And again, it's worth us examining our own hearts and asking, what do we bring unto the Lord? Because when we get to to the New Testament, we discover that God speaks of our lives in a metaphorical way of kinds of sacrifices that are to be a response to His sacrifice for us. That are to be a response to the grace of God that we have received. And so there's verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where after laying out all that God has done for us in Christ, in those first 11 chapters of Romans, it says in 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. That we are to bring our lives as a sacrifice unto the Lord. But, There is an order of priority here. It's in response to that one sacrifice by which these unblemished sacrifices point to. And you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know what I'm talking about here. Namely, just as Christ is that perfect priest who is our perfect representative, he also becomes the sacrifice. This is why in the early pages of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus off in the distance, he points his finger and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does he talk about? Is he talking about Jesus had really thick arm hairs and he looked like a lamb? No. He's the sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who bears the guilt. He is the one who takes death for us in our place so that we can be accepted before God. Again, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26, but now 
Once, at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So this is where, in a, in a sense, the picture breaks down because the priests of old, they gave oversight to the sacrifices that were brought to the altar. And it was always animals that were sacrificed. But here, when we come to the New Testament, it is the priest himself who climbs on the altar and is himself the sacrifice. He himself bears in his body the full judgment of Almighty God so that sinners like you and I can be accepted. First Peter attests to this in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were, you were redeemed with corruptible, th- you were not redeemed, I'm sorry, with corruptible things like silver and gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your fathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Friend, you need not only the right priest, you need the right sacrifice. And Jesus is that right sacrifice. On that cross of Calvary, he absorbed in his body on that Roman tree all the judgment of hell of every sinner who would ever believe. He bore it. And so you must believe. You must believe. That he did that for you. That that is your only hope. To stand before this holy God. Of whom in the ancient economy. He would strike dead any priest. Or anybody who brought these these unholy sacrifices to him. Again friend. Don't think that you could bring your trinkets of righteousness. To be accepted before him. But once you believe in that perfect. Sufficient sacrifice on your behalf. Then, in response to that, out of love for him, you bring your life as a sacrifice. But also knowing that the sacrifice that you bring is not what makes you acceptable, but it's like those, those other sacrifices. In fact, this is the fascinating thing here. There's one sacrifice that Moses says could be with blemish. Look at verse 23 of Leviticus 22. Page 169, Leviticus 22:23. It says, Now in respect to an ox or a lamb, which has an overgrown or stunted member. So, you know, this is the, the animal with the extra long leg. You know, or maybe it has, you know, a short leg. It's hobbling around. Three-legged lamb. He says, you may offer it. Wait a second. For what kind of offering? A free will offering. But for a votive offering, it will not be accepted. You see, the peace offerings, there was different categories of offerings. There was free will, thank offerings, and votive offerings. The votive offering was when you made a vow to the Lord. Lord, if this happens, I will bring a sacrifice to you. And so it was a fulfillment of that vow to bring the sacrifice. So he said, no, no, you can't, you can't bring the, the three-legged lamb for that one. But 
for the free will offering. In other words, the offering that you're not obligated to bring, you bring purely out of love and devotion to me, not because you have to, but because you want to, you can bring the blemished animal. I find that fascinating. If it was a sacrifice, like a burnt offering where justice was required, it had to be without blemish. But if it was out of love and devotion, you could bring a blemished animal. And that's the kind of offering I think that typologically, that is a picture of our offerings that we bring in response to God because of His offering in Christ. What's the point? Your free will is like a three-legged lamb. The good deeds that you bring to God out of gratitude and love for Him, they're like deformed animals. They're not perfect. But nonetheless, God accepts them, not in a way that makes you acceptable before him, but because he knows they flow from a heart of love as you have believed in his perfect sacrifice. Sometimes children, my own children, other children, will come up to me after the service and they'll hand me a sheet of paper. And on this paper is... Sometimes a drawing. And sometimes it's a drawing of me. And they're bringing this drawing out of love for me. Sometimes this drawing, my head is like three times the size of my body. It's not a Van Gogh, it's not a Rembrandt. It's not perfection. But when I receive that, do I look at it and say, what on earth is this? Get this garbage out of here. Girl, you need to take some drawing classes. Get on Art Hub or something. No, no. I receive it. I welcome it. With a smile on my face. Oh, thank you, sweetie. What a wonderful drawing. Why? Because I know it was given to me out of a heart of love. Well, in a similar way, when we in response to the great sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for us in making us acceptable before God, we bring our little drawings to him. They're inadequate. They're not worthy of him. But he smiles upon them. Says thank you. It's beautiful. Not because of its perfection, but because it comes out of a heart of love for the King who has sacrificed for us. So, my friend, don't be reluctant in bringing your sacrifices to the Lord. Not as a way to be accepted before Him, it's only His sacrifice upon the cross that makes you accepted. But as the author of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. 
the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not neglect to do good, sharing, for with such, such sacrifices God is pleased. He says, do good, share, share with one another, do good to one another, and God smiles upon it. Again, not because that's what makes you accepted before him, but because he knows as you have embraced his perfect sacrifice and your heart is overflowing with love for him, even though it's inadequate, he smiles upon it. He delights in it. But also notice some other stipulations related to these sacrifices, verse 22, or verse 26 through 33. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to Yahweh. So it, it couldn't be a newborn goat that would be torn away. I'm sorry. It had to remain seven days with its mother. On the eighth day it shall be accepted. So it, it had to come to some measure of maturity. We can't can't help but think that maybe that's a picture of Christ who had to be brought to maturity. In other words, he, he couldn't die in infancy. He couldn't die prematurely. He had to live that perfect life to be that perfect sacrifice. But also, verse 28, but whether it is an ox or a sheep, you shall not slaughter both it and its young in one day. So it, it wasn't to be a family. Both mother and child animal. Which again, I can't help but think of the typological fulfillment that they didn't die together, but that soberingly the child could be taken away from the parent animal and slaughtered. A reminder that Jesus, in a sense, was taken away from the Father, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Verse 29, and when you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to Yahweh, you shall sacrifice it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am Yahweh. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am Yahweh, and you shall not profane my holy name, but I will treat, be treated as holy among the sons of Israel. I am Yahweh who makes you holy, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh. So again, my friends, God was concerned that you come with the right priest, but also the right sacrifice in the right way. And as New Testament Christians, God has provided that in Jesus as the right priest and the right sacrifice in the right kind of way. And by the way, it's the only way. Any other way 
We saw in Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, God struck them dead when they offered strange fire. God gives this warning to the priests. If they were to come with their uncleanness, God would cut them off. Friend, don't toy with this. There's a reason why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. There's a reason why the message of the, of the apostles in Acts chapter 2, or in chapter 4, verse 12 was, there is salvation found in no one else. There's no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There is one priest, there is one sacrifice, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You go to God through Jesus. And I understand in our pluralistic culture that is not popular. And I don't say that with any meanness that, oh, Christians are smarter than people of other religions. No, I say that because it's the truth. That this is the sacrifice God has provided. And you reject this, you reject it to your own eternal peril. But thirdly, not only the right priest, the right sacrifice, the right partnership. Lodged in the middle of priesthood and sacrifice in this chapter, in verses 10 through 16, is an interesting section about who's allowed to eat of the sacrifice. Remember, some of the sacrifices, of course, the the whole burnt offering sacrifice that we see in chapter 1, all of it was burnt on the altar. It was all consumed unto the Lord. But then there was other sacrifice, like the grain offering, where the, the grain was given to the priest and some of it was, was, was burned unto the Lord. So that the priest, that was how he fed himself and his family. Same thing with the peace offering. Some was burned unto the Lord, some was burned unto the priest, and even some was burned, uh, was given, not burned unto the priest, was given unto the priest in a kind of doggy bag, and then some was given to the worshiper. And so keep in mind also that this was part of how priests provided for their families. This was... The, the priests were not given plots of land like the other tribes in Israel were given. They were given land which they could harvest, but not so with the priests. They were given certain cities that were sprinkled throughout, uh, throughout Israel, but this was how they fed their families. And so there were certain stipulations. Who could eat? Because this is, this is holy food. And so... Verse 10, no layman, that is a person who is not a priest, however, is to eat the holy gift. A foreign resident with the priest. In other words, if you had, uh, you know, somebody who was uh, non-Jewish who lived with you. Or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. So it couldn't be, you know, uh, you know uh, somebody who was working for you, somebody who, uh, you know, was a guest in your house. Verse 11, but if a priest buys a person as his property with his money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. So if this was a slave, they were allowed, because if they were a slave, he was responsible for the provision of that slave. Now again, we hear the term slave, and we revolt against it, you, you have to go back to teaching I did in chapter 19 on slavery for more information on that. 
Verse 12, if a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy gift. So if she was, if she was married and she wasn't married to a priest, she's not allowed to eat of it. Verse 13, but if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no seed, no children, and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food. But no layman shall eat of it. So if she's, uh, if she's widowed or divorced, again, now the, the father has a responsibility of providing for his daughter who doesn't have a husband to provide for her, so she's allowed to eat of it. Verse 14, but if a man eats a holy gift unintentionally, then he shall add to it a fifth, uh, a fifth of it and shall give the holy gift to the priest. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of Israel that they raise up to Yahweh and so cause them to bear the punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts for I am Yahweh who makes them holy. So we say, what, what do we make of this? Well, as a basic, simple principle. In order to eat, to partake of the holy food that had been sacrificed on the holy altar, you had to be related to the priest or a slave of the priest. It couldn't be anybody. And again, this is highlighting the holiness of God. These, were, these priests were set apart to the Lord in, in, in this sacrificial system. We say, what's the New Testament significance of this? Well, in order to receive the benefits of the sacrifice, you have to be related to the priest and a slave of the priest. You have to be related to Jesus. Not biologically, but a spiritual union to the high priest. You have to be one who subjects yourself to the high priest. You are owned by him. And, and when we come to the New Testament, uh, two of the beautiful phrases or words that highlight who we are as Christians are one, union with Christ, and the other, slaves of Christ. Union with Christ. That phrase over and over, in Christ, in him, in Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. For just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To be in Christ is to be united to him. So that you are connected with Jesus and receive all the benefits that Jesus has won. Romans 8.1 Therefore, now there is no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to be united to the high priests. You also have to be a slave of the high priest. One who has subjected your will to his will. Say, Jesus, you're the boss. You call the shots. And so, friends, very simple question. Are you... United to Jesus. And you get united to him by faith as you trust in him as your high priest, as you trust in him as your perfect sacrifice. Then you could receive the benefits. Then you can partake of the sacrifice. You can feast with 
the high priest on the tab of the high priest. And also, are you a slave of this high priest? Have you submitted to him? Or are you the boss of your own life? Are you the one who calls the shots? Are you the one who decides what you want? You're the master of your fate. You're the captain of your ship. Or is Jesus the captain? If he's the captain, if you're united to him, then you have all the benefits of his sacrifice. Full forgiveness of sin, the promise of eternal life forever and ever, adoption into his family, tremendous benefits. Even, it is interesting when you think about the Lord's Supper, it is a kind of holy food, right? A holy food that not everybody partakes of, but you have to be united to Jesus by faith. A kind of holy food, so much that those in in 1 Corinthians 11 who partook of it in an unholy manner, God cut them off. Some had fallen asleep. But that communion, that Lord's Supper, is a picture. It's a picture of the eternal fellowship and eternal communion that we have with the Lord forever. Heaven will be a feast, an eternal feast. In fact, Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, the end of the book, it says, Then he said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, an eternal feasting with the high priest, Receiving the benefits of his perfect sacrifice and his holy priesthood. Friend, don't miss out on that. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, indeed, as we read Leviticus 22 at first glance, it seems very foreign, very strange. But Lord, hopefully as we look a little bit longer, a little bit closer, we're able to see how these realities are fulfilled in the Lord Christ. Lord, I pray for those in this room who do not know Jesus as their high priest. They've never felt the weight of their guilt and sin before you and have never laid hold of Christ and his perfect sacrifice on their behalf. I pray you would drive them to the Lord Jesus. Oh, Spirit, turn their hearts to you. Give life. In Jesus' name, amen.